0: Minus Fobiscum, amigos, and welcome back to another episode of the Heavenly Toast podcast. Thank you for joining me here on this, the second Sunday of Lent. I'm be reflecting on these readings. I hope your Lenten observances have been going well. If it makes you feel any better, we're a week and a half in at this point, so we're chugging right along. I have to admit, I was a little bit surprised when I opened my missal and saw the readings for this Sunday. It seems like usually there's a reading of the Transfiguration during Lent, but it seems like it comes much later on during Lent. And that kind of mirrors what happened in the Gospel story, that the uh, apostles went up with Jesus to Mount Tabor, witnessed the Transfiguration, came down, and then went to Jerusalem where Jesus entered into his uh, suffering, passion, and death. But this year, it comes much, much earlier. Like I said, it almost feels like we're coming straight out of the gate at this. And if I had to make another confession, I gotta say that the account of the Transfiguration always kind of confused me for a long time. It just has this very weird feel in terms of the gospel stories. You know what I'm saying? Like As you read through it, it's just kind of like Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus onto Mount Tabor. Jesus garments and his face begin to shine with the radiance that nothing on this earth parallels. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus, and they're talking, conversing together. And then Peter says, hey, let's pitch some tents. It's great that we're here. And then a cloud comes in and says that Jesus is God's beloved son and that the apostles should listen to him. And it's just kind of this weird mishmash of things that seem to happen that to us today in 21st century America and wherever else you're listening from, seems kind of foreign. It just almost seems like there's a uh, strange mishmash of different things that are happening here that don't really have any connection to one another. But I started contemplating and kind of mulling things over. And I think that we lose something when we kind of approach the gospel with modernist lenses, with modern day lenses. And I really think that there's a lot here that really only becomes visible if we view things through Jewish lenses. And by that I don't mean like, you know, the national treasure spectacles where you can only read the map on the back of the Declaration of Independence by, you know, putting on these special bifocals. But what I mean is there are allusions and deeper meanings that can be drawn out when we read things through the same lenses that Peter, James, and John would have been looking at this event through. Obviously, the Peter, James, and John were all observant Jews. Jesus was an observant Jew. And when we look at all of the apostles, Peter, Paul, Andrew, James, John, James, Philip, Bartholomew, Simon, Jude, when we look at all of them, They were all Jewish people that really read and understood a lot of the Jewish history, the Jewish tradition, and really were steeped in that sort of worldview. So let's take a look at what's happening. I think that as I've grown and as I've learned a little bit more about the faith and a little bit more about scriptural scholarship, the more I realize that coming at things from that cultural point and from that world view, really helps to illuminate a lot of what's going on. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the kind of the chosen three that are the closest to Jesus, and he goes up to Mount Tabor. Now immediately we have something that would have rung out in the ears of an early first century Jew. When people go up to the mountain. The mountain is the place of encounter with God. You see it when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and all throughout the Old Testament, that when people go up upon the mountain, that's a place where encounter with God occurs. So we have that right out of the gate. Immediately, this would ring out in the ears of a Jewish listener, and they would recognize, hey, something's probably going to happen here that's very important. And when we, as we take the next step, we have Moses and Elijah who appear to Jesus. Moses and Elijah, maybe they just seem like pious biblical figures in today's day and age. We don't really know a whole lot about them. But these are two critically important people in the Jewish worldview. I mean, this is like, This is the dream team. I mean, this is better than the 1992 men's USA basketball team. I mean, this is like infinitely better than anything that we can possibly imagine. I don't even know if there's a good comparison to what we would kind of think of in the modern world. But it's like if the childhood heroes that you had dreamed about and who have achieved legendary status, even beyond somebody like, you know, I don't know, if you're a fan of basketball, Michael Jordan or something. Like, it would be far beyond that. It would be thousands of times bigger than that. In the person of Moses, whose name means to draw out, because he was drawn out of the river um, when he was brought into the Pharaoh's family. But he's also, he also draws the people out of Egypt. He's the one that leads the Exodus, that frees the Hebrew people from slavery. Not only that, but he's also the one that receives the law from God. He receives the Ten Commandments on the tablets that are written with the very finger of God. And this is what is to govern the people of Israel, God's chosen people that he has chosen for his own. And when we look at that, we recognize that not only is Moses sort of this... um figure, this legendary figure that means and is so closely connected to the law and to the covenant that God makes with his people. But we also recognize that this is a part, a very important part, of God's revelation to his people, of himself. Even before Moses receives the law, he speaks to God in the burning bush and God tells him, I am who am, the great divine revelation of who God is. That s- single statement, I am who I am, has been the subject of so much thought and philosophy and prayer and meditation and understanding of who God is in the Catholic tradition and who um, he Reveals himself to be and what that statement truly means for his relationship with us So when we draw into this sort of mystery we recognize that Moses is this great figure who not only represents the law but represents this great Revelation of God in terms of who he is and who he wants to how he wants to relate to his people The second person is Elijah Elijah is another, almost legendary figure in Jewish history. So Elijah is coming at the time of the uh, the kingdom of Israel, kind of, and he's there's a there's a great difficulty at the time where he really pops up and his story occurs, where his life unfolds. The people, the Hebrew people, have turned to idols. They've started to kind of intermarry with other surrounding cultures, and they've started to wander away from God. So much so that at one point, Elijah even says, I am the last of the prophets of the Lord. All of the others have died, and I stand alone, is basically what he's saying. Elijah's name means that God is the Lord. Or put in another way, in Hebrew, it would mean, Yahweh is the Lord. Why is that significant? That's incredibly significant because of that same strife that I just mentioned. This confusion about who God is and who these idols that we're worshiping are. There's this divide in the Hebrew people as they kind of go off and they kind of intermix with this society and kind of adopt their cultures and forget this God who has claimed this people as his own. So much so that Elijah at one point has this confrontation with the prophets of Baal, who is this great idol figure of uh, other societies and this great, um, I don't know, force of contention and evil uh, that these Hebrew people are worshipping. Elijah stands alone against 450 prophets of Baal. This is talked about in the first book of Kings. And the showdown occurs where both of these sides, so to speak, build altars to their god. The prophets of Baal build their altar, they place their sacrifice out, and they call out, trying to uh, make this sacrifice acceptable, trying to get this idol, Baal, to listen to them. And they cry out and they shout, nothing happens. And they cry out all the more and they shout and they begin to slash themselves with swords and spears as was their custom. And nothing happens. There is absolutely nothing that happens. Elijah takes and builds his altar, places his sacrifice before the Lord, and calls on the Lord, the God of Israel, and immediately fire from heaven comes down and consumes the sacrifice, and the people recognize that the God of Israel is in fact the Lord. It's another part of God's revelation, and Elijah stands in as the great prophet So with Moses and with Elijah, we not only have a little bit more of God's revelation of who he is and how he is going to relate to his people, but we have the law and the prophets. Both of them are present at this great meeting of the transfiguration. Now what would this mean to a first century Jew? I got to believe that you would think that the world was coming to an end. I mean, this is like the two two of the biggest people in your history, the two biggest people that you could, you know, think of. The people that everybody would have been like, yeah, this is if I could pick anybody to have dinner with, these would be two of the guys, you know. And they come and they appear with Jesus. The apostles that are there, Peter, James, and John, are probably thinking that this is where... The great messianic promise is going to be fulfilled. This is going to be the reestablishment of the Davidic kingdom. This is going to be where God comes back to vindicate the Jewish people. And this great kingdom is going to be established forever and ever. And Peter, James, and John are probably thinking, man, we've got front row seats to this. This is crazy. This is apocalyptic. This is far beyond anything that I could ever imagine. So Peter goes ahead and he says, Lord, it's good that we're here. Let us build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the voice from the cloud comes out and says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What's happening here? This is the next part of God's revelation. This is kind of a brief microcosm of salvation history, of God's unfurling plan to bring his people back to himself and to reconcile the world to himself. This is kind of a 10,000-foot view of what God wants to do and how God wants to bring fallen humanity back to himself. This is how he wants to bring mercy to everyone, how he wants to bring the lost sheep back. So the apostles are probably thinking that this great swoop of glory and power is going to happen, that God will take his mighty arm and swoop in and bring this kingdom to fruition. And instead, what happens, they say, no, we can't stay here. We must go down the mountain, and we must go to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man is to be tried, and executed and killed, is to be handed over and killed. This is a far cry from what the apostles were expecting. And that's probably one of the reasons that they didn't speak about it to anybody. is because it probably was, it completely defied expectations. They didn't know what to think at this point. They're thinking, Lord, it's good that we're here, this entire thing, great, you know, good glory and power and everything is going to swoop down upon the world. And then all of a sudden, God says, no, this is my beloved son, you listen to him. No, we're going to go down the mountain and we're going to go to Jerusalem. There's probably, there was a little bit of incongruence between what the apostles were expecting and what actually happened. And I think that this is the great message of the transfiguration for Lent, is that, yes, Christ's garments become dazzling white, his face shines like the sun, We're allowed to see a glimpse of his glory here on earth, but we must recognize that God does not always act as we would expect. He doesn't. There are times where we pray and we think that a certain thing should happen, and it doesn't. But that's because God has an even bigger plan. In the transfiguration, we see further and further revelation Of God to his people first through Moses then through Elijah and reaching its fulfillment in Jesus that's where the greatest revelation of God to his people happens is in the very person of Jesus he reveals himself to us personally as a human with human flesh And what does this mean? Yes, it means that he has all power and all glory for sure, but it also means that he's willing to go to the cross for us, that he is willing to subject himself to humiliation, to pain, to suffering, to enter into that with us, and that he won't abandon us. So the great message of Lent here is that Ultimately, God's plan, it's probably not going to be in the way that we expect. There are great moments of being on the mountain, being close to God, seeing his glory, his power, everything like that. Deep moments in prayer and in meditation. But ultimately, things might not happen as we expect. Prayers might be apparently unanswered for the time. The little sacrifices that we make during Lent, the little fasts, maybe they don't. Uh, we don't see the uh, growth that we'd like to see, right off the bat. But the important thing to remember is that as God moves along, He has this plan to reveal Himself and to call us back to Him, and that the important thing that we need to do is to recognize that God is the Lord, that he has a plan and that he loves us very much. And that even if it's not in the way that we will expect, this plan is backed with the power of God himself and that we can have faith and hope in the fact that he loves us, that his plan is good for us and for our good, and that all things work together for those who love him. With that, I hope that your Lenten observance is going well. Let me know in the comments if I can be praying for you. And God bless, friends. Cheers.